to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we are talking about or trying to raise awareness that heart disease affects men and women. No, hang on. What am I doing? Okay, here we go. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, you might be surprised to learn that heart disease affects women too. Also, is there a double standard between men's sexual health and women's sexual health? Is he a stud? She's a slut? I don't know. Also, what are the dangers of gel nails and those air dryers in public bathrooms? What exactly is self-confidence and why is it important for you in the bedroom? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Well, I know that people understand that men die of heart attacks, men are at risk of heart disease, and they associate, whether it be in clinical trials or just in the doctor's office, that, yeah, this could be a heart attack. But what about women? The story is quite different. And joining me on the line is Christina Stewie. She's an ambassador for the Heart and Stroke Foundation, and she is a heart attack survivor herself who has become an advocate for women's health. Her near-death experience has led her to becoming an author and, as I mentioned, an advocate for women's health. And she joins me on the line from Calgary. Good evening, Christina. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. More importantly, how are you? (laughs) I'm doing great. (laughs) That is fantastic. Good for you. I'm so happy to hear. You know, I... I hear patient stories in my clinical practice um, about presenting to a doctor and they have, you know, months of, of sweating and fatigue and, and uh, pain in, you know, in their back and they are diagnosed with anxiety, depression, menopause, kidney disease, <laughs> prolapse, everything but heart disease. So um, tell me a little bit about your story. Uh, well, my story started, um, I was watching cartoons with my son on a Saturday morning, and my heart just started to race for no reason. Um, and so I went to um, the walk-in clinic, and I had some tests done. Um, I had an EKG that said, you know, that my heart rhythm was off a little. They thought it could be something. Um, then I had some more tests, and I had a 24-hour heart monitor, and seven months later, um, I was visiting with a cardiologist and asking, you know, what was going on with my heart and why was it, you know, why was I having these issues? And um, I was told I could have a stress test and an, an echocardiograph. And on the echo, um, it reported that my lower left ventricle of my heart was only beating at 35% instead of the normal 55. And when my husband and I heard this, it was like, okay, well, why? And my cardiologist at the time said, well, you know, I think we're just going to wait a year and see what happens. And my husband and I were like, well, why would we be waiting if something is wrong now? And we had to push and continued to push until finally it was decided I would have an angiogram. And that angiogram uh, was an eye-opener because I had three arteries that were blocked. One was 100% blocked, and I was told that I'd had a heart attack three years earlier. 
Three years earlier. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, so when you talked about the, the third, yeah, I was going to say the cartoons and the yeah. young child, you know, underscores <laughs> the fact that this happened young. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you talked about the 35% it's meant to be beating at 55%, we're talking about your ejection fraction, the measurement of blood leaving your heart every time it contracts. Is that um, yeah. what you're referring to? Yeah. Um, so yeah. under... Yeah. You know, under 40, we're talking dangerous levels. So they wanted you to wait <laughs> um, yes. a year. My cardiologist did, yes. And uh, my I husband mean, and just... I, yeah, we wouldn't yep. take that, though. <laughs> that's just shocking you know, just, to me. You know, it, it really is. And it's, um, it's unfortunate that we really, as especially as women, need to advocate for, or, you know, be an... an um, you know, fight for our right to have proper tests. And the fact that that we had to continue to push and, you know, if it wasn't for my husband helping me, um, I don't think I would have been able to push because I was already upset about the situation and what was happening. And I just, I encourage, you know, women or men that are on a journey to find out what's wrong with their health, that they always have someone with them there to process the information with them. Right. I mean, I hate to say it, that, you know, is it the fact that a man spoke up for you that another man listened? I mean, that, that does happen. Uh, let's, know, let's um, be real. It, it does happen. I don't know if it was that in this case. Um, I, I really, I, I couldn't tell you more. All I know but, is that we had to fight. The other thing I want to say though, is you must have been tired um, that must have been one of the uh, symptoms you were experiencing. And you know what? You're too tired to fight. And you're like anxious and tired and curious and frightened. And so it's yes. difficult to make a case under those circumstances. Additionally, there are gaps in awareness, research. We know that way fewer women are entered into clinical trials versus men. And then the gender inequities as it relates to that research is not teased yes. out. Uh, effectively, um, you know, this lack of diagnosis or late diagnosis and care threatened women's heart and brain health. And that's according to a new heart and stroke report. System failure, healthcare inequities continue to leave women's heart and brain health behind. And we also have yeah. other uh, issues such as race, ethnicity, indigenetic indigeneity, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, geography, body size, and ability. All of that will impact a woman's diagnosis of heart disease and a heart attack. And and basically, women are dying unnecessarily from this. Yes, that that it's all true. And, you know, it's it's shocking when you you realize the statistics that you know, 50% of women are misdiagnosed when it comes to their heart. That's a pretty big number. And women's bodies are not the same as men's. No, I mean, newsflash. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and, and the lives are very different as well. There's biological differences. You know, women face distinct risk factors, and, and they're more likely to experience certain types of heart and brain conditions, and also the social differences yeah affect their health as well. Um, You know, thank you so much for coming on the show to raise awareness about this. And this is an important subject for women 
and men to understand because you might be at home. A woman might be at home in the yeah. kitchen <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, multitasking, yeah. you know, there was a commercial like that, you know, that the woman was in a suit, she was making breakfast for the kids. She's getting ready to go to work. She's multitasking and she passes out. And so if that's yeah. your wife, spouse, partner, friend, um, yeah. instead of thinking, Hey honey, you on the floor there with, you know, sweating and having heart palpitations. Yeah. Hey, are you having an anxiety attack? Maybe think yeah. heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is this in yes. your head? Are you just hysterical? <laughs> yeah. Um, is, is it, you know, you know is, it, is it hormones? My guest is Christina Stewie. She's an ambassador for Heart and Stroke Foundation because, in part, she has suffered a heart attack at a very young age herself, a near-death experience. Christina, thanks, thanks for staying on the line with me. I appreciate it. You betcha. Um, so did you ever think in your mind when you were experiencing those symptoms or you went from the heart palpitations to the cardiologist's office after a seven month journey, um, that mm -hmm. you were having a heart attack or you, that you'd had a heart attack? No, it, it never, it never came to mind because uh, the symptoms, I, I didn't even know that I had symptoms until I had the angiogram. And then when they told me, you, you know, you'd had a heart attack when you were 44, I knew the exact day and the exact time and the exact event. <laughs> and and <laughs> what were the symptoms that you were... 2020. <laughs> of course. What were the symptoms yeah. you were experiencing at the time um, heart Well, I was lifting something that was quite heavy and it was a, it was a summer day um, and I just, I felt uh, lightheaded. I had... Um, a, a lot of sweating and I was quite pale and you know looking back I, I understand it now but I, I didn't at the time I just thought oh well this you know this footstool is heavy and you know it, it's hot out right and that's how I justified right. it. And who would ever associate any of those symptoms with, with heart disease because we're just men have heart attacks that's all and they have chest pain <laughs> and arm pain left arm pain and jaw pain and that is it. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but we, cause we don't educate, we don't raise awareness about this and we certainly right. need to do this because there are so many inequities that women face low socioeconomic status, ethnicity, indigenous people in Canada are more likely to be at risk for currently living with heart disease and stroke compared to the general population, which is absolutely horrific. People living in Northern yeah. rural and remote areas are more likely to experience heart conditions and stroke and more likely to die as a result, these days, it's extremely difficult to get an ambulance in, an, in the city, let alone in rural yeah. and remote areas. We also have mounting evidence that 2SLGBTQ plus community people as a group face more health inequities than their cisgender heterosexual peers, likely because of a variety of factors. In part, I know that there's healthcare discrimination um, toward that group as well. Minority stress mm -hmm. negatively impacts cardiovascular health in the 2SLGBTQ plus communities. And, you know, it's, it's not that one's heart is a gay shape and therefore it pumps it differently, pumps the blood right. differently. <laughs> it's right. the overarching notion that the 2SLGBTQ people live with discrimination, harassment, the threat of violence at a much higher rate than cisgender heterosexual folks do women with disabilities yeah. so how do we change this how do we transform the state of women's health 
and brain health. What do we need to do, Christina? You educate us. You tell us. <laughs> well, from my experience, um, you need to be strong and you need to stand your ground. Um, and, you know, if you feel something is wrong, you've got to trust yourself. And you, you have to stand your ground and get that across to who you're talking to. Um, and, and that's one of the biggest things that, uh, that I've learned is um, we know when something is wrong. We do. I mean, everyone does. They know when something is wrong with themselves. And it's just a matter of, okay, I'm not leaving until I get an answer or I'm not leaving until you, you know, suggest a test that can be done to give me more information. Um, and I think, you know, if we're armed with that knowledge that we're not leaving until something is done, the, the professionals we're dealing with are going to realize, okay, they're really serious. So I guess maybe we need to look at some solutions right now. Absolutely. And we, we have to change this mentality of how we have inequities in healthcare, how we treat, how we research, how we treat, how we assess yes. women uh, differently to, than men. You've also become an author through all of this, Christina, and you know, more power to you. You are just pumping it Thank out you. there, girl. Um, <laughs> so tell me about your book. Okay. Well, my book, um, it is about my journey, um, the struggles that I had, uh, what I had to go through, you know, not just in the process, but mentally and emotionally. Um, and I, I wanted to share my story because I want to help um, others, especially women, not go through what I went through, or at least know that they're not alone. And, and maybe there's questions in my book that could help them. And maybe there's suggestions that could help them. And, you know, um, Maureen, I'm on several panels to change um, and embed in the medical system um, heart-related questions and tests, especially for women who have challenges in pregnancy, um, like hypertension, um, gestational diabetes, and preeclampsia. If, if women have any of those three, um, or like in my case, I had two of the three, um, you're 50% more likely to have cardiovascular disease in the future. Well, six years after I had my son, I had my heart attack. Wow, so that's amazing. I, we, I'm like we need to conclude this in prenatal education. Yeah. Christina, I've got a, we've got yeah. 30 seconds left. What is the name of your book and where can people get it? You bet. It's Yes, It's My Heart, Is It Yours Too? And it will be released on Valentine's Day on Amazon.ca and .com. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Christina. Good health to you as always. Thank you for raising awareness and kind of changing this Valentine's Day from the love <laughs> day to the heart day. I really appreciate it. I <laughs> appreciate so much, you coming Maureen. on. You know, with Super Bowl Sunday, it had me thinking. For years and years, we have watched commercials about erectile dysfunction, Viagra, um, you know, and the, the, how the impact that has had on men, but you know what? It's also had an impact on women. It's provided a tremendous amount of education. It's raised awareness about it and everybody seems to be okay with it. But when we talk about women's sexual health problems or problems that might occur at midlife, we seem to have a problem. I'm curious, is there a double standard? I think there might be. 
And so we have to continue to educate people because quite honestly, so many of my patients have learned so much from those, just the fact that they had those Viagra commercials. And I've had women come up to me and say, you know, the man in my life was having erectile function issues and then later was diagnosed with heart disease. You know, when I, I learned about that, I, I realize now that erectile dysfunction can be the canary in the coal mine and it can actually be indicative of cardiovascular disease, which we were talking about earlier with regard to women. You know, so oftentimes women think education for men is just for men and men think education for women should just be limited to women's ears, but that's not the case. We actually need to empathize, understand, and learn about each other because a lot of people are in relationships with people of the opposite sex. And those problems can actually impact a relationship. Case in point, I have a friend who was over for dinner recently. She's 43 years old. And she came in to help me clean up from the dining room. And she was visibly upset. I could see that. And she was starting to sweat. And she broke out in tears. And she said to me, I had to leave the room. Because I said, oh, you don't have to help me. I'm fine. She said, I had to leave the room. I'm having heart palpitations. And, and then she just burst out crying. And she started to tell me about all the symptoms that she'd been having. Now, she's 43. She's been having these symptoms since she was 37 years of age. She had brain fog, mood swings, trouble sleeping, low sexual desire that was affecting her relationship. She thought she was having Alzheimer's disease. She thought she was in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease, and she was so afraid. The brain fog was affecting her work. She said she was able to get away with it when she was working remotely from home. But now that her company had forced everybody back to work, it was evident, and she was having brain fog during presentations. I suggested that she was in perimenopause and that she go and speak to her doctor about this, which she did. I don't have a follow-up yet because I haven't, <laughs> I haven't heard from her. We just recently had the dinner. In any case, um, I had another uh, patient who, and I, and I educate people all the time in my clinical practice, men and women. I had another patient, 42 years of age, going through a divorce, heading down the pathway of divorce because her issues impacted her intimate life with her husband. These issues are so common. Half of the globe will go through menopause, yet we don't talk about it. So I have invited Dr. Shauna Johnson, an esteemed OBGYN, extremely knowledgeable in this area and all that can occur to women at this time of life, onto the show to discuss this. Good evening, Dr. Johnson. Hello, Maureen. Thank you for inviting me. And I share your passion about menopause and our need to educate women about it. And what are your thoughts on educating men about it? <laughs> well, absolutely. It's, it's, as you said, it's, a, it's a, not a disease, but menopause is a time in a woman's life. It's universal. Every woman will go through menopause. And the consequences of menopause don't just affect women. They affect relationships. 
and the ability for women and men to function within those relationships. So, you know, absolutely, it's a shared consequence and the knowledge about it needs to be shared as well. And how early do women need to learn about menopause? I I mean, at what age would you suggest that women start to have some basic knowledge about this? Well, you know, I think knowledge um, is power and knowledge enables decision-making. And the average age of menopause in North American women is 51. Um, And it's better to know, I think, what you're heading into rather than deal with the consequences and then figure it out. So I would encourage every woman, just like I tell women before they become pregnant, to understand what good health is and what good preconception counseling is before you're pregnant. I think women in their 40s should start getting informed about what menopause is, why it happens, and what the consequences are, and then what the choices are in managing their symptoms and in maintaining excellent health. You know, menopause is an opportunity. It's a time to reset and um, maybe reevaluate some lifestyle um, habits and make changes for the better. Um, So... Any, you know, honestly, any time, but certainly before menopause happens in your 40s is an excellent time to start thinking about all of this. Yes. And, you know, perimenopause, so let's just step it back 10 years, (laughs) the average age of onset of menopause um, Mm -hmm. is preceded by perimenopause, which, you know, I mean, it's, it's a small percentage, but you know, women in their late 30s can start to experience some of those changes that are associated with the decreasing or the fluctuating hormones. Absolutely. And so, go ahead. Oh, um, you know, I was just going to say that perimenopause is also a universal state and it's the time when estrogen levels are fluctuating. And, you know, I think it's a time of confusion for women because menstrual cycles become erratic, but they, women still have some menses. And so, you know, the the common teaching is you're not menopausal until your periods stop altogether. But it doesn't mean you can't have symptoms of menopause before your periods stop. And, you know, the sort of the old-fashioned paternalistic medicine is to pat women on the head and say, go away, you're not menopausal yet, but perimenopausal women have all of the same symptoms and um, sometimes need the same treatments as menopausal women in terms of hormone replacement therapy to prevent them from not sleeping well and um, not getting bladder infections. So perimenopause is real and it's long in duration, and um, if women understand what the symptoms are, they'll get treatment faster than waiting for their periods to stop and definitively calling themselves menopausal. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. My guest is Dr. Shauna Johnson, an OB well-versed in the area of menopause, a natural transition of life that half the globe will go through, and the other half of the globe will likely uh, be part of as well. And it's important to have understanding in business and in the home 
and in intimate relationships. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for staying on the line. Estrogen decreases in, in, uh, at menopause, and which is why we have some of the symptoms like the dryness of dry hair, dry eyes, dry mouth. What are some of the co more commonly known symptoms of menopause? Well, I think um, most women are familiar with the fact that menopause results in the cessation of menstrual periods, and that's associated with hot flushes. And I think a lot of women would, would also know that menopause is associated with sleep disturbance, and sometimes you know, the, the fatigue that's a result of sleep disturbance causes mood changes and maybe some irritability as well. So, you know, the classic, I think, familiar symptoms of menopause would be hot flushes and sleep disturbance. But, um, you know, the, what women don't perhaps know is those are the early symptoms of menopause. And those are um, really symptoms that for most women, 70% of women, they resolve within five years. And... Um, only 30% of women really have persistent symptoms like hot flushes and sleep disturbance. But what follows those early symptoms, sort of with a slow creep, are things like urinary urgency and frequency and sometimes burning when you pee, which sounds like a bladder infection, but it isn't. Um, sometimes urinary incontinence and... Um, particularly the urinary incontinence that's associated with the need to go to the bathroom right away and not being able to get there fast enough, which we clinically call urgency incontinence. And then the vaginal symptoms of dryness and itching and sometimes burning in the vulva and discomfort with intercourse. And all of those symptoms, you know, start around the time of menopause but progress really slowly. And so by the time the hot flushes and the sleep disturbance have resolved, um, what women are left with is not that menopause is over. Menopause is obviously still continuing because it's a chronic state of hormone deficiency, but they're left with bladder symptoms and vaginal symptoms that are five years after their period stops so they don't make the association that those are menopausal symptoms. And unfortunately, Unlike the hot flushes, they don't go away. They tend to get worse and worse and worse with time. And that results in women not having intercourse because it hurts, not riding a bike because it's painful, their vulva is painful or itching or burning when they get on a bike, and then not doing things because of incontinence or bladder irritability. And, and now estrogen has gotten a bad name. Um, from the Women's Health Initiative study, yet uh, estrogen systemically is typically what is used in, in many women or one of the options um, to use for women who have uh, systemic vasomotor symptoms, some of those um, sleep disturbances, the mood disorder, that type of thing. Um, so what are some of the treatments for some of the other? Do we use estrogen to treat some of the bladder issues and some of the discomfort uh, in the vulva area? So, you know, the easiest um, way to explain menopause, it's, it's a state of chronic hormone deficiency, and the major hormone that's deficient is estrogen. 
So all of the consequences that I talked about in menopause are symptoms of estrogen deficiency. And so it would make sense that estrogen replacement would treat those symptoms. But for the pelvic symptoms, the bladder symptoms and the vaginal symptoms, vaginal hormones rather than hormones in the system, like hormones by mouth or hormones by patch, are not only more effective but can be given in much lower and therefore much safer doses. Um, so really when we're treating vaginal symptoms and bladder symptoms, it's using vaginal hormones. And do we have safe options for the treatment of VVA in breast cancer women, for example, because the, as you mentioned, estrogen in lower doses is beneficial to treat the vaginal and vulvar symptoms. So what about women who have breast cancer? Yeah, you know, this is sort of a chronic question, and I think, you know, unfortunately, there's this sort of urban legend um, and fear surrounding hormones systemically that translates into hormones vaginally, and um, if I could give one message to women, it's that vaginal hormones are safe in capital letters, um, and so... Even in breast cancer survivors, there are hormones, particularly estrogen, that can be given in the vagina that's such a low dose that it's not absorbed into the system, so it never reaches breast tissue. It never reaches the circulation to get there. And so even in breast cancer survivors, there are absolutely robustly clinically proven safe options to treat um, the symptoms of menopause that are related to vaginal um, dryness, vaginal um, discomfort, there are options, absolutely, even in breast cancer survivors, even in women with strokes and heart attacks, even in women with liver disease. And what are some of those options? So estrogen, and estrogen comes in various delivery vehicles, so it comes as a cream, it comes as a tablet, and that tablet goes in the vagina, not by mouth, and it comes as a ring, and that ring stays in the vagina for three months, and then it comes out and the new ring goes in. Um, there are newer products on the market. Uh, there is a hormone precursor called DHEA, which is a a pre-hormone um, that's converted locally in the vagina to both estrogen and androgen because androgen levels drop in menopause as well. And so DHEA has the added benefit of giving back or replacing a bit of androgen that's lost from the ovary when the ovary stops producing hormone and giving back estrogen that's lost from the ovary when the ovary stops producing estrogen. That's what happens in menopause. Um, DHEA is a is somewhat like a tablet. It's a it's a an ovule or a, an insert that goes in the vagina, so it's much like a vaginal tablet. And then there is an oral sort of designer estrogen that is taken by mouth that has activity like estrogen in the vagina without activity like estrogen in the breast and without activity like estrogen in um, in the circulation to the same degree. So that's a really novel approach um, to give estrogen by mouth that actually only really works in the vagina. 
But for every everything else, the estrogens and DHEA, the product that I mentioned that's both androgen and estrogen, those are things that are delivered vaginally because they're applied vaginally. And they're all prescription. We only have about 30 seconds left. They're all prescription and they're lifelong therapy. Is that right? Absolutely. They're lifelong therapy because this is a, after menopause, this is a lifelong condition and hormones help with it. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I I feel like it's learn now and live better later. (laughs) So I really appreciate your education. I'm sure the listeners do as well. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for your interest and your passion. You're very welcome. Coming up next, we're going to still be talking about a few things that can impact your health. What about those air dryers in public bathrooms? Do people even wash their hands after they go to the bathroom? I hope so. They learned it during the pandemic. And the dangers of gel nails. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks so much for tuning in this evening. Um, in this hour, the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show, we're going to be talking about some of the dangers that um, you might think are making you more beautiful, but maybe they're actually causing you some trouble. Also going to be talking about hand hygiene and uh, sexual health and what that means in terms of uh, sexual self-esteem, self-esteem and sexual coercion. And also going to be talking about sexual, uh, about, sorry, about, well, sexual self-confidence, but self-confidence in general. And that can certainly include sexual self-confidence as well. But first I want to go to uh, a caller and a text before we're joined by my next guest. Um, but I have Catherine on the line from Surrey. Hello, Catherine. Hi, Maureen. I, 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 it's been bugging the heck out of me because for the last five years, I if I eat plas- like any food that's in plastic, like fruit, cups, or anything that's in the store that's been wrapped in plastic, I will get mm-hmm. clusters of these hot flashes. But if I avoid these plastics, I don't get them as severe. And I mean, they're severe. They're crazy. And I just want to know if you knew what that is or well I know that I know that there are some toxic and harmful plastics in food, and that can be a contributing factor to increases in disability and disease as well. So I mean, it is probably best to avoid plastic exposure because it it has been shown to have damaging effects on health as it relates to cancer risk and fertility, immune disorders, and and other um, symptoms that people have complained about. And, you know, phthalates are a group of chemicals that are used to make plastics more durable, but they can, they're plasticizers is is what they're called, and they help to dissolve other materials. And they're in so many products and also in personal care products as well. So, that might be why you're still experiencing some. So I would just be very, very careful around plastic. We shifted from glass to plastic, um, you know, to make it more accessible for people. And um, but it's really had a negative impact on our health and on the environment as well. Um, 
Hope that helps, Catherine. Thank you so Thank much you. for the call. You're so welcome. I wanted to take a text message as well, um, because this is a subject that I feel needs more airtime, and um, we need to raise awareness about this because this happens so commonly. Um, and there was a series of text messages that David sent in, but one one was, hi, nurse, <laughs> any talk on baby mamas that hate men and society too? And you know what? Th- this happens so commonly. People get into a relationship, they love one another, or maybe not, maybe they marry for whatever reason, or maybe they just become a baby mama and um, get into a particular situation. I've seen this quite a bit in my clinical practice, and and maybe they fall out of the relationship, fall out of love, whatever it is, but they oftentimes use the children as pawns. And and it sounds like, although I don't know the whole story here, but I mean, I'm just getting the tip of the iceberg. It sounds like this, perhaps this person, because of a um, a previous text that they actually wrote that they'd been ostracized from their daughter and home for over five years. Um, you know, people think that they are doing, uh, I'm not sure if they think they're doing good. I'm not exactly sure what they think they're doing, but they're not only harming the per- the other person that they have disdained for, and it's never just one person who causes problems in a relationship. They're actually harming their children eventually their children will want to know their parents, both of their parents. This happens both ways. This happens with both parents, with men, women, they, same-sex couples, heterosexual couples, where the idea is to use the child as a pawn. And it's, it's just so negative. I don't know if you were listening last week, but I talked about forgiveness. And Forgiveness is, is in part getting that person out of your head, getting, leaving the disdain. This is very toxic to yourself when you have, I I mean, I I completely understand hurt and pain and relationships and things that happen to people. I have, believe me, I have heard some stories that would curl your hair, um, they are heartbreaking. They are horrendous. I mean, they are just tragic. And when people hold on to the anger and the hate and the disdain, and they never take a look at, and I'm not talking about something such as a violent crime like rape. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about a relationship that does not work out for whatever reason. I am not talking about an abusive relationship. Although I do think there is a place for forgiveness. It's not something you give to somebody else. Forgiveness is a gift you give to yourself. It allows you to live with peace of mind. And there are a number of steps to that, which I, which I have outlined and, and talked about that subject in the past. But how do I feel about baby mamas that ostracize the other parent? I don't feel good about that at all. I think it is horrific. I think it is mean. I think it is tragic. You do not have to speak to your partner. Now I am our ex-partner. I'm also not talking about when there is violence in a home or with a child, or there has been, um, a violation, a sexual assault, all of that aside, I am talking about somebody is split up. They are angry that the person split up with them. They use the children and they talk disparagingly about the other parent. That's what I'm talking about. So with this, I do not, I don't know the whole story. 
David, but thank you so much for writing in because I do think that children benefit best. And I think the courts are agreeing to this more and more when they have both parents in their lives. Okay, getting on to some other happier subjects like going to the beauty salon, which may not actually be so happy. So this subject, you know, came to mind when my niece who had just graduated from nursing school, she said that, you know, a couple of her friends had seen some young women in their late 20s um, who'd been admitted because they had um, skin cancer on their fingertips and they were attributing it to something at the nail salon. Joining me on the line to discuss this is none other than Dr. Tomi Mitchell. You've heard her voice before. She is just such an advocate for health and also does a lot of leverage-based leadership and empowers people so that they can reduce burnout and increase their productivity. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. Thanks for having me again. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this particular subject. I have to say I've had Jill nails in the past and Mm -hmm. I noticed that they made my nails, which are quite typically quite, you know, hard, pretty good. They grow pretty quickly, but they were making them thin, brittle. They were peeling and cracking. It was hard to get that gel off. I just couldn't stand it. And so I haven't had gel nails for a long time. So I just use the regular nail polish and I just um, dry them in between each layer of um, when they put, when they apply each, I forget what it's called. Um, You know, when you have the nail polish put on coat, coat, that's it. Each coat. Um, And so I kind of have them dry and that kind of helps, you know, last, they last for a week or two anyway, it's fine. But um, there is a risk we're seeing. What, what are your thoughts and what's the, I know you've been doing some research on gel manicures. What have you found out? Yes, they're definitely. So my disclaimer, I definitely have used gel. I actually have gel nails on right now. So anyone that Uh sees me, yes, I am aware. (laughs) (laughs) But no one said I was perfect. But yes, there is research out of there. So this is my advice to confessions, late night show um, gel nails. So there is research that pedicure for me. I know. I'm the pedicure. That's my vice. Give me a pedicure anytime. Oh, I'm all <laughs> for both. massage. Oh, yeah, yes, definitely. So, yes, there is research that those those lights that we just put our nails in to cure the layers of the, the coat, sorry, do emit UVA um, rays, which is harmful, which can age our skin, damage our skin, but more sinister, increase risk for certain cancers, particularly skin cancer. So, yeah, there are you know, some concerns. Nails are so popular. I mean, there are nail salons yes. all over the place. Everybody yeah. gets their nails done. Mm-hmm. So many people get those, get the gel nails. And I have to say, I was a, I was a party to it. I, I was a victim of it myself. And then I realized this is making my nails so thin, so brittle. That's why I stopped, cancer aside. Um, but there are people who are seeing premature aging, skin aging yeah. on their hands and as well, and, and hands can tell the age of a woman. Um, oh yeah. but, but also, you know, that risk of skin cancer, which can be very damaging to the appearance of your hands. So, so skin cancer on your hands can result in, I would imagine excising it and it can be very unsightly. Definitely, and also can appear in your nails too, you know, 
you know, you oftentimes, like you mentioned, nails get thin, you can, they can be brittle. Um, and then, you know, for those who are thinking, oh my goodness, I do gel nails, you know, you have a wedding or some events. Okay. I guess that I, if you can minimize it, right. Or give your nails a break, let them breathe, so to speak. Like don't be going back to back to back to back, you know, getting them done. So, uh, definitely. A lot of risk. people do that, though, because it lasts oh, they longer. Do. They think it looks better. Yes, yeah. they do. But that's the risk. Some people are more prone to their nail getting brittle. Plus, if you have underlying like anemia or the conditions that will make you more prone to being brittle, or you're not getting enough calcium, vitamin D, etc. Um, all of those things can affect your nails. And plus, whatever else you're doing with your hands, like you said, your hands show your age. Um, you know, as I read this article recently and I'm like looking at my hands, I'm like, well, thank God I put retinol on my face and I use it on my hands. So that's at least plus, but yes, (laughs) (laughs) definitely. Okay. That dried out my skin as well. And then they said to me, well, you have to buy this other product too. We knew that it's going to dry out your skin. I'm like, forget it. it. Um, I just wanted to mention, are there safe ways, um, to, to deal with, uh, reducing the damage, or how do we reduce the damage from, yeah. from gel nails? Well, I would say, A, don't get them very much if at all. Like, use, like, as you use, regular nail polish, or use the dip nails. It's like a little, it's like a little powder that they fill mm-hmm. on the nail, so you don't need the curing with the gel light. You know, it, it looks very nice. It lasts just as long. I've definitely done it before come to think about it, but it's been, a, it's been some time. So, yeah, so don't let them push around with your cuticles. I know that's a thing for most places. They want to, like, work them, that try is, to leave them alone. That is true. Yeah. You know, I'm limited on time, as you are, and whenever they start, I, I just typically will say, can you just, you know, just actually quick little, you know, quick and dirty, get me out of here mm-hmm. quickly. But then mm-hmm. I, I, I've always been like, what are they doing to my cuticles? Like, like, stop. <laughs> I don't have time for this. And I don't actually see the difference. But I do know that it can actually increase your risk of infections. And, and also, oh, yeah. the, um, my guest is Dr. Tommy Mitchell. We're talking about things that uh, might endanger you or mm-hmm. at least gross you out. This one's going to gross you out. So this is a true story. Doc, two of them quickly. I just want to say one time I, I was recently I was on a vacation with family and my brother said, I'm going back to the hotel room. I have to go to the bathroom. I'm like, why don't you just go to the bathroom right here in the lobby? And he's like, no, I don't do public bathroom. I'm like, okay, whatever. Anyhow. So, um, but now I think he was right. (laughs) Then the next thing I literally witnessed this, I saw somebody blow their nose into their hands. They were wiping their nose and sneezing into their hands. And then someone came along and put his hand out to shake the guy's hand. And because now since the pandemic is over, air quotes, since there's no more COVID, mm-hmm. not true. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people are now shaking hands again. They're not doing the elbow thing. They're not wearing the mask. So he went over and he shook the guy's hand. I, I literally tried to stop him. <laughs> and, but I was too late. Um, so anyway, I'm like, oh my gosh, the hygiene practices of some people. But this is something that has always grossed me out because yeah. I don't know why I think I heard about it a while ago and that is the bacterial horror of hot air hand dryers I may never use a public washroom again as well because of a lot that has come out in this study so 
Tell us about this new study from researchers at the University of Connecticut and Quinnipiac University. Well, I want to say I I am a germaphobe, so I'm like your brother-in-law. I avoid public bathrooms, and if I do use them, I don't try not to touch surfaces. So um, basically, these little dryers that you put your hand on, you're thinking you're drying your clean hands, you may just likely be sucking the poop bacteria-laden air from the bathroom in, onto your hands. Lovely. So it's delightful. And that so comes from the I, toilets, right? Yes, the exactly. Because mi- little microbes are dispersed throughout the air. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's no lids in those toilets. They just flush and it sprays in the air and it can spread quite far, you know, like, I think like six feet or something. So do that over and over again in a small bathroom. You have um, a lot of poop in the air. So yeah, absolutely, I, I will never use a public washroom again. I and this is my brother, by the way. This is a relative. Oh, your brother. Okay. <laughs> that I just thought was OCD, anyway, and um, runs in the family. And I'm a bit of a germaphobe too, but certain things don't really bother me. But I haven't used hand dryers for a long time, and I've always, if there's a hand dryer and no paper towels, I just use the toilet paper. I'm mm-hmm. a whiz now at that pun intended. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, so so really, aside from never using public washrooms. Um, best thing you know if there's no paper towels use the toilet paper (laughs) yes as long as it doesn't have aspirated bacteria on it but yeah exactly so don't touch the door handles if you can have if you don't have to touch the door don't touch it (laughs) yeah it's gross it it truly is and then use your hand sanitizer on the way out to the bathroom yeah. yeah, that's a good idea too. But most of these microbes the, that aerosolize from flushing a toilet won't cause any any harm to individuals, mm-hmm. except for Staph aureus is a risk, which that's not great to get Staph aureus. And, and also in hospitals, spread um, you know they can spread C diff, Clostridium yeah. difficile, which is also another little chronic diarrhea condition. Anyway, mm-hmm. I don't know what the world is coming to, but. <laughs> <laughs> We're I've all seen that, Maureen, with the hand washing. Remember, I did primary care, and people will show you things, and you'll be like, please wash your hands. But everyone will, and they'll want to come out and go scrape the world. So, yes, when you're yeah. shaking someone's hand, beware. I will never shake somebody's hand again. I, I, I've done it once during the pandemic, and I was like, why didn't I say something? I, I Anyway. But no, I, I will never shake your hand. I will elbow you. That's it. But um, exactly. anyway, yeah, we have a whole new education on, on germs since this pandemic. Anyway, Dr. Mitchell, thanks so much for joining once My again pleasure. to educate about some of those everyday uh, issues that uh, that fall upon us as we walk through life. <laughs> really good. appreciate it. My yes, from one germaphobe to an act to another. Oh, yeah. Thank you so Definitely much. One. You're welcome. Take care. You know, life is extremely difficult to navigate. At times, some people seem to have so many troubles. Oftentimes, you can think, when is it ever going to end? One difficulty, we've had the pandemic that has affected so many people in so many different ways, financially, health-wise, loss of life, grief, inability to communicate with loved ones or to visit loved ones in long-term care facilities, working from home, pivoting so much, you're you have your children underfoot, you're homeschooling, two people might be working from home. It's difficult to excel in life sometimes. And excelling in life takes confidence. And you know what? We all lack confidence in certain areas of our lives. And working on those different types of confidence can really help you. 
And if you feel like you have a little bit more trouble in certain areas, it might be a good idea to focus on those areas where you lack the self-confidence. You might not have known that there are actually four types of confidence that you need to excel in life. And there are ways that you can work on those daily. You know, I'm sure there are things that you do really well in life, whether it's a physical activity or whether it's at work, you know, in, if you're, work as a nurse, you might be outstanding at codes, or if you, you might have a tremendous bedside manner. Um, you know, there's certain things that people know they are good at. Maybe public speaking, you think you're amazing, or maybe public speaking, you would rather go to a rock fight because you are so nervous about it and you lack the confidence. Well, I just wanted to review quickly the different types of confidence that you need to excel in life. One of them is social confidence, and that's that ability to portray yourself as a confident person in social situations. You often hear about people saying, I have to have a few drinks before I go to that party, or I have to take, you know, pop some pill before I can deliver this speech. Um, you know, the way to develop confidence in social situations is typically done through empathizing with and understanding the mindset of the people around you. Quite often, it's even listeners. I have to understand the mindset of those who might be listening to this program. But if you're doing something in public, for example, you might want to focus on appearance and body language and how you speak to people. What is your tone? How is it high pitched? Are you speaking too quickly? And you need to consistently work at this in terms of improving that social confidence. So to make it a little bit easier for you. And as you do it repeatedly, you'll certainly gain that confidence. We're all nervous when we do something for the very first time, but here's a way to improve social confidence. And it's that dress for success, because I hate to say it, but that's one of the first things that people judge you on is how you're dressed. You know, we can say we're overdressed for this or we're underdressed for that, but you want to dress how you'd like to portray yourself. Do you want to be serious, professional, in a, you know, in a suit? Do, do you want to look together? And to be honest, the more together you look, the more confident you will look and feel. You also want to engage in conversation. People actually take notice of how much you talk to them. If you're constantly avoiding conversation, that can actually demonstrate a lack of self-confidence. So even if you have a brief conversation with somebody, it can up your confidence and the way that you're viewed. So small talk is something to actually work on and work your way up to deeper conversations. You know, Everybody has expertise. I don't care if you are a truck driver, if you are a registered nurse, if you are a teacher, if you are a plumber, you have expertise. And, you know, to be honest with you, it is very challenging to have confidence in all areas, but you can always fall back on your area of expertise. And you want to be confident in that expertise, entrusting your own skills and abilities. And this can mean your ability to complete a difficult task or having knowledge of what you're doing. And so the best way to work on your confidence in your expertise is to keep learning, be open, be willing to let people correct you if you're wrong, accept feedback. Feedback is a gift. I want to move on to physical confidence because that's very important as well. Being confident in your physical appearance is very important because it can be challenging 
to make friends or have intimate relationships if you lack that physical confidence. So it's important that you look after your, your body. You want to work out, have good nutrition, have positive affirmations, make a list of things you like about your appearance and recite them to yourself when you're feeling low. Everybody has body image issues. And you know what? You also want to have confidence in your self-worth. Know that you are worthy. Forgive yourself. You are worthy of forgiveness. Even if you mess up or do something bad, you cannot live with guilt forever. Guilt is meaningless. Guilt is not a very good emotion. You want to encourage yourself as well. Be your own cheerleader and keep a gratitude journal. Every single day, wake up and write down three things that you're grateful for that day. It can be as simple as the air you breathe, the sunny day that's outside, or the way that you feel, or the fact that you have your health, because your your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, And I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.